Lord, we ask that you give us wisdom now to understand your word that you've given to us as a gift. We ask that you would give us discernment, that we would divide it rightly. Lord, I ask that you would give us contrite and repentant hearts that are willing to change when your word calls us to do so. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Just do me a favor, turn in your Bible to 2 Corinthians, surprise, chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 14 through to chapter 7, verse 1. If you have been in the church for any length of time, if you've grown up here, or maybe just spent a few months or even years here, you've probably discovered the fact that there are buzzwords that Christians tend to throw out with very little regard for actually knowing what they mean. And they're sort of thrown out because they sound good and they sound spiritual, but when you sort of press the buzzword, it ultimately doesn't have a lot behind it. So point in case, I've had over the years friends who've moved out of town or moved churches or been church hunting, and I've asked them questions like, well, what did you think of the church that you checked out this weekend? And I've gotten responses without fail, a great number of them. They've said things like, yeah, it was fine. I'm just, I'm looking for something more authentic. And I have no idea what that means. Like, I just have no idea, like, what that actually looks like, because at the same time, I've heard people say, you know, I thought that church was cool, but the worship just didn't feel authentic. Okay, why? The singer wasn't on key. Oh, so that's what authentic means, is on key. Well, then I'm never authentic. Like, like the word is used and used and used until it means absolutely nothing. Uh, another great one that sounds wonderfully pious and makes for great hashtags, community. I'm just really craving community. Okay. By that, do you mean like some buddies you can hang out and drink a beer with and laugh at funny memes? Or by that, do you mean probably the more biblical understanding, which is people who you can have a beer with and laugh at funny memes about, but who also is going to call you on your crap and, and tell you you need to repent and say, hey, you made a dumb decision and I love you, but you need to fix it. Is that what you mean? I, I don't know, because we throw this word out all the time. And it's the same with characters in Scripture and portions of Scripture, that they, they sort of are just our automatic response to problems. You've got a friend who's going through some sort of a difficult trial, and you say, you've got to be a David and face your giants. <laughs> I love that people cringe here when I say that. That means I'm doing a good job preaching. <laughs> Or, or you've got somebody who, and, and I know that since something good and sincere is meant by this, but you've got somebody who's in her 20s and she hasn't found a spouse or a boyfriend or a girlfriend and she says, I'm waiting for my Boaz. <laughs> oh gosh, it's so cringy. But, but the reality is that what's meant by this is not entirely wrong. You, you look at the text around David and you go, you know, uh, you can learn something about courage from David. Uh, and you know, you can learn something about long-suffering from Ruth, but the more you probe those texts around David and around Ruth, the more you realize that while that may have a surface-level application, there is something far deeper below those passages, that they are pointing to something greater than just facing your giants and waiting on your Boaz. They're pointing ultimately to Christ, who is our kinsman redeemer. They're pointing to Christ, who is a greater king. There's more there. It's not that that's totally wrong. It's just that it's unbelievably shallow. And the text that we come to 
this evening has served that function for a very long time in the life of the church. It is the go-to passage about why you shouldn't date non-Christians in your true love waits class. And the reality is that that is not entirely wrong, but that is not what this text is saying in its entirety. And there is something deeper and weightier and heavier behind it. And Paul realizes that what he's about to say is sort of going to be a sledgehammer in people's face. Uh, You see this in verses 11, 12, and 13, as he prepares to drop the bomb, he says, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. In return, I speak as to children. Widen your hearts also. I don't know. I don't know if you've ever had to have one of those really difficult conversations with a friend where you've just had to layeth the smack down upon them. Uh, And maybe you're the sort of person who also just rips Band-Aids off when you've got a cut because you'd rather just get all the pain out of the way right away. I'm not one of those people because I'm terrified of conflict. And so I tend to wrap the sledgehammer in as many pillows as I can before I swing it at someone's face. And so I say things like, hey, man, you know I love you, right? You know this is coming from a place of love, and I don't mean to grieve you. I don't mean to wound you. I'm not trying to hurt your feelings. But here's the problem. So there's all this pillowing before the smack comes. And ultimately, Paul realizes that what he is about to say here is going to be a smack in the face for the Corinthians. And so he says, just know we've spoken to you freely. Our hearts are wide open. We haven't put any stumbling blocks in your way. Please open your hearts. Here comes the hammer. And the reality is tonight, as we walk through this text, there are going to be a few things that I have to say that may feel uncomfortable. Know that it does not come from a place of uh, anger or the desire to wound. As your pastor, it comes from my desire to be faithful to what the scriptures teach and so honor the God who inspired them. So open your hearts. And we come to Corinthians 6, verses 14 through to chapter 7, verse 1. Let me read it for us. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst. Be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. I will be as a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers is the true love waits. Don't date unbelievers proof text. But what most people are unaware of is that Paul is actually taking two laws that God gave to the people of Israel and he is connecting them together and restating them for the New Testament people of God. So he is pulling this from Leviticus 19.19 and Leviticus 22 verse 10. 
And both of those texts deal with the uniting of two animals that are of a different species. So Leviticus 19.19 says, don't mate two animals that are of different species. Leviticus 22.10 says, don't yoke together two animals that are of a different kind or a different species. So uh, it's the equivalent of saying, hey, you shouldn't take a chicken and your dog and yoke them together and have them pull your plow. And At the heart of what is being said here is that two things that are fundamentally unalike ought not to be united together in purpose. And this is important because Paul has spent two chapters now talking about what happens when someone becomes a Christian. When somebody accepts the gospel of Jesus, when somebody bends the knee to Christ as Lord, and if you'll remember in chapter five, he said, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. They're not a refurbished creation. They're not something that got a little dirty and God put in some spit shine and cleaned it up. But at the foundation of our very being, if anyone is in Christ, they are something fundamentally different from what they were before they were in Christ. They are new. This brings us to something that is a little bit uncomfortable, but, but hear me out here. That at the heart of the case that Paul is making is that there exists a fundamental difference between a believer and an unbeliever. Now, what I am not saying is that Christians are better than non-Christians. What I am not saying is that Christians deserve more love or affection or kindness or they deserve greater rights than non-believers. That's not what I'm saying. What I am not saying is that unbelievers are incapable of being good citizens and husbands and wives and fathers and mothers. That is not what I am saying at all, so don't hear me say that. But here is the uncomfortable truth, that if you were to place a non-Christian male and a Christian male next to one another, biologically, they would be the same. Maybe not identical unless they're twins. But at the very foundation, there are differences. One is justified before God and the other is not. One's name is written in the book of life and the other's name is not. One has received the Holy Spirit and the other has not. One is declared righteous through Christ and the other still stands under the judgment of God. They're not the same. And on this level, and this level only, this certainly has implications for your romantic lives and our romantic lives. I I am fully convinced and fully aware that, man, Christians can have relationships, even romantic ones, with non-believers that still exhibit love and kindness, and there can be happiness. And so I'm not saying that that is not present. What I am saying is that if you're a Christian and you're pursuing a relationship with somebody who is not a Christian, that seems unwise to me. And it seems unwise to me because if you've received Jesus as Lord, and he is, as he ought to be, the very basis of who you are and how you live Well, all of your choices and lifestyle decisions are going to be incomprehensible to the person who should understand you best. But Paul never mentions marriage in this text. Actually, Paul has never mentioned marriage at all in this letter so far. Because Paul, in this passage, is not primarily talking about five steps to a better dating life although there are maybe some ramifications there, as we've said. Uh, One commentator 
explains the heart of this really well. He says it in this way. The command is not an injunction against marrying unbelievers, though that is unbiblical. Rather, it is a command not to be yoked together with those in the church who oppose the truth of the gospel. If you've been with us for this whole show, that Paul is primarily addressing the Corinthians who have changed their mind and returned to the gospel and the people in the Corinthian church who insist on leading them astray towards another gospel. They've rejected the saving work of Christ. They've rejected salvation by faith. They've rejected everything that Paul has laid out in these last few chapters as being the foundations of Christianity. And what Paul says to the Corinthians is do not be yoked and bound together in the church with these people because it's not that they're good Christians misguided. They are unbelievers because they have denied so many fundamental things about the gospel that they have functionally become non-believers. Do not be bound to them. This is not a text about your dating life although it may have some implications. It is a text about the purity of the church. Now, I realize that when you hear this, and you hear this, uh, this idea of not being bound to unbelievers, some things might come to your mind, because I think rightfully so in some ways. We hear this idea of uh, separating from unbelievers in the church, which is ultimately what we're gonna get to, and, and we think, about denominations, and we think about how many times denominations have been the result of people splitting hairs over stupid things. People who think that rock bands are of the devil, um, foosball is of the devil, and all that other sort of thing. Uh, we think about people who are leaving their churches because they hate the color of the carpet. I was having a conversation with Brad, who's our worship pastor here, and he said at one of the last churches that he was a part of, they changed the color of the choir robes from red to green because the red was an ugly color and they had a woman leave the church because she said that I want red robes so I can be covered in the blood of Christ and your green robes are evil. That's stupid. That's dumb. And so understand that there are the sort of divisions and separations that may happen in churches that are not a good thing. And here there, there are divisions over things that are important, I think. But I have heard of countless college ministries and small churches being cracked down the middle because some people are Calvinists and others are not so much and they just rip themselves apart. And hear me when I say that is a tragedy. That does not take Jesus' high priestly prayer seriously where he prays that his church would be united. But there are entire denominations that have refused to separate even though half of their clergy doesn't believe Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. That's an abomination. Paul says, do not be yoked with these people who are unbelievers in your church. And here's what I want to make sure that you're not hearing out of this. What, what Paul is not saying is that in the church, there's not a place for people who wouldn't consider themselves to be Christians but are here uh, present in the church out of curiosity. In Paul's first letter, 1 Corinthians 14, he's talking about speaking in tongues and he goes off on this whole diatribe about speaking in tongues and then he says, you should really be careful about that because what happens if an unbeliever comes to your service and thinks you're all insane? 
So Paul totally leaves space for unbelievers to be present in the church. Man, if you're here and you're not a Christian and you're, you're just here because your friends have been dragging you or, or you're here because you're interested but not sure, I'm so glad you're here. There is space for you here. And we welcome you. Paul is not saying that there is not room for people in the church who doubt. The, the book of Jude talks about us having mercy on those who doubt. One of the greatest gifts that Baylife Church ever gave me is that they let me come to, the pastors here let me come to them with questions. And they help me find answers. And so if you are struggling with doubt, there is space for you here to wrestle through those things and to emerge on the other side with a stronger confidence in the gospel. Now, what Paul is saying is that Christians within the life of the church should not be yoked and bound to those who reject the core tenets of the gospel. And when two animals are yoked together, both of them get an equal say in determining the direction of the two. He's dealing with leadership in the church. He goes on, and he offers a series of questions. He says, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? And then he asks one final question. What portion does the believer have with the unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? You'll notice in the first three of these that he lists, he is listing something that has become true of people who have accepted Christ. He says, what fellowship or what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Only a few verses before, he said that if you are in Christ, that God has made him to be sin for us so that you might be the righteousness of God. If you are, in fact, the righteousness of God, what partnership should there be with lawlessness? What fellowship does light have with darkness? If you remember earlier, he said that the God who said, let there be light, has caused light to shine in your heart so you could see Jesus for who he is. Why would you take that light and unite it to darkness? He says, what accord has Christ with Belial? And all of what he has said in these last few chapters, it hinges on if anyone is in Christ. Now this phrase, or this term Belial, is probably unfamiliar to anybody who doesn't listen to black metal. But Belial is a term that doesn't appear anywhere else in the Old or New Testament. It's a term for Satan that was commonly used in Paul's day in Judaism. But it's not just any sort of a name. I don't know if the playground was like this for you as a kid, but we would pick on kids based on their shortcomings. So the kid who picked his nose, we called Booger Eater because he eats his boogers. It's very efficient. The kid who peed his pants we called pee pants because of what I just said. Well, the term Belial is a slang term for Satan, which means treacherous and worthless. It was a way of taking Satan's attributes and making a mean name for him out of them. And what he is ultimately saying is, why would Christ, who is supremely valuable and entirely faithful, be united to somebody who is utterly worthless and entirely faithless? Why would you unite Christ to treachery? That's the point that he is making. And then he says, what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple 
of the living God. And then he begins to make a case from the Old Testament, promises that God made to Israel that ultimately find their fulfillment in the church. God makes this promise. I will make my dwelling among them. I will walk among them. I shall be their God. They shall be my people. The reality is that with the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, God no longer dwells in houses built by human hands. If you're new to the church and you think that like, this is an especially holy place where you should do less bad things, you've got a faulty understanding of the four walls of Baylife Church. God does not especially dwell here so that if you say bad words here, it's somehow worse for you. God dwells among his people. And whether the church meets in a home or it meets in a church building, he has made the church his temple by pouring out the Holy Spirit on his church. And so what Paul says is, the church has become the temple of God. And just like the temples of old, just like the tabernacle in the Old Testament, just like the temple that Jesus drove the money changers out of, the dwelling place of God must be holy. It is a desperate plea for the purity of the church. Not that it wouldn't be a space for unbelievers to come and have their questions answered, but at its most fundamental being that the church would be led and governed and comprised primarily of people who are faithful to the gospel and are concerned about holiness. And I think all this begs the question, when you pray for our church here at Baylife, and I hope that you do, if you don't, you should. That's why we include a section on our program about people here at our church that you can pray for. But when you pray for our church, are you primarily praying that your preference would be actualized? Or are you praying that the leadership here would stay faithful to the gospel? Because there are all sorts of preferences I have and you have and we have that may or may not be viable. But Paul very clearly says we should not be yoked to unbelievers. And so if you are going to pray for anything in our church, pray that the people who lead would be faithful to the message of Jesus Christ. Do you grieve when you hear about churches that have abandoned the core tenets of Christianity and gone their own way? I heard several months ago about something like that, and I'm going to be honest with you, I spent my whole night weeping in my apartment. Because I desire that Jesus, is Christ, Jesus Christ's church would love him well and hold fast to the truth because the church of Jesus is the temple of the living God. Now, many of us here are hearing all this talking about the purity of the church and that it should be led by people who are faithful and, and you're saying, yeah, that's awesome. I love that. Some of you are probably in your head fist bumping and going down with the heretics. Let's just start a pyre and burn them at the stake out back. Maybe not. Maybe no one's as dark as me. But some of you are hearing this and going, yeah, absolutely. Purity of doctrine. Keep the church pure. Don't be yoked to unbelievers, people who deny the gospel. But notice how Paul ends this appeal. He says, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And I had a conversation six or seven months ago with a, a guy in the area who's been a little bit of a mentor of mine, a pastor in a local church. Uh, he's went to the same seminary that I'm going to. 
And I was just asking him questions like, how do you not lose all of your hair and remain a pastor? Like, how do you not go absolutely crazy from frustration and worry and concern? And he recounted to me that while he was in seminary, he wasn't the best student. Like, like he did his best, but he wasn't some genius. He didn't pass Greek with flying colors. He got B's and C's on his paper, even though he tried his best. And there was a guy in his church who actually went on to be really, really famous. Not in his church, a guy in the seminary. He went on to be super famous. All the professors loved him. He wrote these brilliant theological papers. Every preaching class he took, he was basically the instructor because he was so good. And several years ago, he and his wife both cheated on each other multiple times because for all of his theological knowledge, there was no holiness in his life. Which is why Paul doesn't just tell the Corinthians, you need to separate from the people who are leading you astray. You don't need to be yoked to these unbelievers who are steering the church in the wrong direction. He turns the finger from them and he points it at himself and he says, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Because the danger for the church is not just the heretic out there, it's the sinner in here. And I have friends in seminary who can talk circles around me in languages I'll never hope to understand. And they have crippling addictions to porn. And you may be able to pass with flying colors a test on the doctrine of the Trinity. But if you don't love your neighbor as yourself, that's just as much a threat to the purity of the church as the people who are walking in heresy. Which is why Paul first says, separate. Don't be unequally yoked. We are the temple of the living God. Don't be led by people who are unbelieving. But then he points the finger at himself and everyone else and says, cleanse ourselves, body, spirit, both in what we do and in how we think. Bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. So, my prayer is that we would be such people. We take the purity of the church seriously. We recognize that there is no fellowship with light and with darkness, with Christ and Belial but that we don't just point the finger at other people. We recognize that we can be just as much a part of the problem as anybody else. You have an opportunity now as you move into communion to repent, to take some time and take stock of yourself and say, hey, have I been walking in the holiness God has called me to before I start lobbing grenades at other people? And so this time is yours. If you are a Christian, you're walking in repentance and you don't have conflict with another brother or sister in this room or in whatever church you're a part of, we would invite you to take stock and come take communion with us. Hold on to it, and in a few minutes, I'll come up and I'll lead us in communion. We'll take it together. So this time is yours to examine yourselves.